Amen. Happy Father's Day weekend. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Genesis 15. We're going to look this morning at verses 7 through verse 21. Genesis 15, verses 7 through verse 21. Last week, if you were able to join us, we saw what it takes to be made right with God. Uh, one of the most critical verses in all the Word of God, Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him, or as your translation might say, credited to him as righteousness. That Abraham has right standing before God, not on the basis of his good works. His salvation is not earned, it's not achieved. It is imputed to his account on the basis of faith and faith in Christ alone or faith in God alone. His, his understanding was God later. He's going to come to an understanding of Christ, but his faith is what saves him. And all of this is part of the covenant that God is making with Abraham, uh, a, a, a promise a covenant to give Abraham two things really two elements of this uh, number one is a nation or offspring but secondarily uh, that of land so there's two parts to this promise offspring that will become a nation and also a promise of land and God is graciously working to strengthen Abraham's faith because Abraham at this point you remember we're several years into the promise and he has no tangible evidence of the fulfillment of these promises. In fact, the circumstances of his life would indicate to him that he's going in the opposite direction. He's no closer in his eyes to the fulfillment of those promises. In fact, he's getting further away. He's getting older, and these things seem even more impossible than what they seemed in the past. And Abraham is going to have to trust that God will fulfill his promises. Not only does he trust that God, does he have to trust that God will fulfill his promises, but that God's plan is perfect and that God himself is good. And that's really the tension that Abraham is facing. And it's the tension that you and I as believers in Christ, we face, that, that God has made some incredible promises to us. And on the way to seeing those uh, promises fulfilled, we often encounter circumstances and situations that, that appear contrary to the fulfillment of God's purposes and plans. And the question that we face and the tension that we face and the test that we face is the same that Abraham faced. And that's this. Do we believe that God will do what he said he would do? And not only that God will do what he said he would do, but do we believe that his plan and his timing is perfect and good, that God himself is good? Do we believe in God not just for the end, but for the means of accomplish, accomplishing his purposes? So we'll see here God work to strengthen, uh, graciously strengthen Abraham's faith and I hope and pray it encourages us in our faith in Christ today that some of you may need some bolstering of the faith today. And as we look to Abraham, as Scripture calls him the father of all who believe, I pray that we'd all be strengthened today. So let's, let's read this text and then we'll pray together. Look in verse 7. It says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I'll possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. 
And he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there was, uh, appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between those pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Raphim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray that as we come to this text today, we would understand that this is not just some ancient text, but that it is your living word and is relevant to our lives today. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you'd make the principles of this text clear, that we might apply them to our lives, that we might not simply be hearers of the word only, but doers also. God, work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we invite you. We plead with you. Work today to make your word alive for your purposes and for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you see there in verse 7, it says, And he said to him, I'm the Lord God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He's telling Abraham, I called you out of Ur for a purpose. I brought you out in order to bring you in. That I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you not just an offspring. We saw him talk about the offspring last week. But I'm going to give you land just as I promised. So I didn't bring you out of Ur of the Chaldeans so that you could die childless and without a land here in the wilderness. I brought you out for a purpose. It's a powerful picture of the salvation. God just doesn't save us from something. He saves us to something. He doesn't just save us from a sinful past. He saves us to bring us into a more glorious future. So it's interesting in, in, in Abraham, these two promises of, of offspring and land. Uh, Abraham is really concerned about the offspring, but God brings up the land portion. And he says, Abraham, I promised land. I'm going to give you land. But then look at Abraham in verse 8. It says, he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I'll possess it? Now, I believe this is a question from a believing heart. I believe the heart of Abraham is that which we see in the New Testament, uh, where it says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Anybody been there? Lord, I believe, but I'm struggling right now. And, and you know, you would think that at some point, God would grow a bit weary with Abraham's questions. I mean, if I were God, I'd say to Abraham, how many times I got to go over this deal? I've already told you what I was going to do. But we see a powerful picture here because God is so incredibly patient. God is all, he never grows weary. Throughout scripture, he never grows weary of those who are always coming to him with a humble, teachable uh, spirit and heart to grow their faith. And so he says, I don't know, how am I going to possess this? And God graciously responds, and look with me at verse 9. And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
Now, this is the part that you look at and says, this seems very strange. This is odd to us, but it certainly wouldn't have been odd to Abram. Uh, he would have understood this very, very clearly. You see, in Mesopotamian culture, whenever they wanted to create a contractual agreement or a, con- a covenant agreement, they would take an animal, they would split that animal in two, they would lay out the pieces parallel to one another, and then they would walk through the pieces of that animal. And what they were in effect saying is they were saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the agreement, let it happen to me as it happened to that animal. Now, that's a pretty serious deal, right? I mean, it makes our little contracts with signatures seem pretty silly. Imagine if today we cut an animal in two and you had to walk through it with your sharpened knife and say, if you don't follow through, that's going to happen to you. But here, God is entering into about as solemn an oath as he can enter into with Abraham. And notice here the humility of God in getting down on Abraham's level because uh, quite frankly, we, we take oaths. Why? We sometimes put the hand on the Bible. Why do we got to do that? Because we're humans and we have a tendency to do what? To lie. But not God. God doesn't lie. God cannot lie. So why does God do this? This is the beauty of it. This is the, condens- uh, the, the condescending God who comes down, who humbles himself and gets down on Abraham's level. Why? Because he knows that Abraham's faith needs strengthening. And it's the same God, wherever you're at today, you're struggling, maybe, Lord, I believe, and I don't believe. It's the same God who comes to us in our situations and humbles himself to undergird us and strengthen us in our faith. And so here, God's, I'll make an oath. I'll get down on your level, Abraham. I'll sign a contract with you. And we see in verse 10, then Abram brought all these animals to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite of the other. And he did not cut the bird. So here's Abraham following God's direction, laying these animals out. And I believe he's probably got a little bit of timidness in his heart because he knows what this involves. And then it says in verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. There's a lot of questions surrounding the inclusion of this verse. Why is it here? And commentators disagree. But I think the common consensus that they all have is this, to some extent, foreshadows the the attacks of Israel's enemies. That we've seen this from the very beginning, that, that wherever you see God working, you will always see Satan at work. And Satan is always opposing God's people. In fact, I'll say it even more plainly. Satan hates God's people. And he hates God's plan. And he hates God's purposes. And Satan knows that if God enters into this unilateral agreement with Abraham, uh, through which uh, the nation will be produced, and through that nation will, become, will come the Savior of the world, Satan knows if this unilateral agreement goes through, then it's his death nail. And so he comes down and Abraham is there to protect this covenant. And and really, I think this is a powerful picture that throughout the history of the nation of Israel, they have always been protected by what? They are protected by the promise that God made to Abraham. And Abraham is always there. Doesn't matter if it's Haman in the book of Esther or Hitler in Germany. You will not annihilate this nation because God made a promise to Abraham. Amen? And God always keeps his promises. So here is Abraham protecting, foreshadowing Israel's enemies. Then look in verse 12. Now the sun was going down and a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. 
So you got some kind of terrible darkness descending, and most believe this is a picture of the, the presence of God. And then look at verses 13 through 16. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I'll also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God is encouraging Abraham with the details of his purposes and the fulfillment of his promises. And God goes into great detail. And in fact, we know that every one of these details will be fulfilled perfectly. The years that are numbered will be fulfilled. Them walking out as Israel will leave Egypt and they will plunder Egypt without firing a shot. They will leave with many possessions. Just as God said... In this path, only God can tell you the end of the story at the beginning. Only God does this. And so he's encouraging Abraham in the fulfillment of this promises. And we're learning a lot about who God is here. In fact, we're learning something of his plan. Because what we find out here is that oftentimes suffering and pain are part of God's plan. And so you can rest assured that this is not the way that Abraham would have worked out the promises of God. This is not the way that Abraham would have done it. I mean, Abraham doesn't even get to, he learns here, you're not even get to really enjoy the land. The only piece of the promised land that Abraham will really own is the, the, the little small piece of ground that he and Sarah will be buried on. That's all they'll ever know of the land. He finds out you're not going to enjoy the land. He finds out that this nation that's going to come from him, they're going to suffer. And that's not the timing. That's not the way that Abraham would have done it. But it's a powerful lesson for all of us that God is far wiser in keeping his promises than we are. Not only is he far wiser in keeping his promises, he's far wiser in the way that he keeps his promises. Because we know that sometimes blessings come through situations and, and circumstances that we would have never have chosen on our own, right? I mean, I can look around this room and you're nodding your heads because you know that situations and circumstances happen to you and you wouldn't wish them on your worst enemy and you didn't want to go through them. But you can look back and see the providence of God to grow you in your faith and knowledge of him and to draw you to himself. You see, God sees the whole picture. God plans for the long term. The purposes and plans of God are never understood in the short term. They're always understood in the long term. But here's the problem. We're short-term people, aren't we? We want what we want, and we want it now. And what we're learning here is that walking with God by faith, like Abraham, requires us to harness our lives to the will of God and the timetable of God. And sometimes God doesn't work in our timing, does he? But what are we trusting? We're trusting that God is good. And not only is God good, but his plan is good, and he will work his purposes out in his timing and in his way for his glory. As Jesus will tell the disciples in Acts 1.8, God didn't put us on the time and dates committee. <laughs> We're just to be faithful. 
Well, then we also see not only the plan of God, but the patience of God. It says in the fourth generation, they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And what does this mean? Well, the Amorites were the people that lived in the land of Canaan. And God is here demonstrating his patience towards sin. These Amorites, archaeology, if, if I were to talk about the stuff that archaeology found out about the Amorite people, we would all blush. I mean, it is, it is incredibly immoral. These were some amazingly immoral people. Sexual immorality, uh, child sacrifice. And quite frankly, though, as I was studying and looking at this stuff, can I just tell you, it's not too far off from where we're living today. As I looked at the child sacrifice, I thought, God help us for abortion and all the babies that have been killed. But here we're seeing the patience of God towards sin. These were an incredibly immoral people. You know, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. What we see in Scripture is God is incredibly patient towards the sinfulness of man. And can we not all say amen? That he was patient with me. And he's patient with all of us. Why? Because he desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. But there comes a point when God's patience ends, right? Because God is patient, but he is also just. And so in this situation, what do we know? There'll come a day when God will release the Israelites into that promised land, and they will destroy the Amorite people. And so many people, when they read those chapters within the book of Joshua, and they say, boy, this is incredibly cruel. It's in the light of this text, in the light of this passage, that we understand that it's not a demonstration of divine aggression. It's a, it's a sign of God's divine justice. That the emphasis is not upon the wrath of God. The emphasis is, in fact, upon the patience of God. And so what do we see here in these details? That God plans for the long term. And he works out his plan and his purposes according to his timing. But you can rest assured of this. His people who love him, he'll carry them through. And the wicked, the immoral, that we look around and say, why aren't they getting theirs? Guess what? There's a day coming. You ever heard that? Mama ever tell you that? My mama did. There's a day coming for you, boy. There's a day coming. So we can rest in the justice of God, amen? That he is a just God who hates wickedness and he will judge it and he'll carry his people through in his timing and in his way. And then look with me at verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And here we see the incredible grace of God, that smoking oven and the, the torch, a lot of conjecture about the symbolism there. But just know this, both of those things combined together, there's no doubt that this is describing the presence of God. And so what we're seeing here is the presence of God is passing through these pieces. And Abraham, you'll remember, here is Abraham, he's struggling with unbelief. 
And I believe that Abraham's unbelief centers upon one key issue. That the real critical issue for Abraham's unbelief is not the character of God. I think Abraham understands who God is. I think Abraham has seen the power of God. He knows what God is able to do. He's heard God's voice. He's seen God now get down on his level. I think he's got no doubts about God being able to hold up his end of the agreement. I think the one key issue for Abraham is that Abraham knows Abraham way too well. And Abraham knows I'm a sinner. And Abraham understands the seriousness of this agreement. He knows what, what, what typically happens with these agreements. Abraham knows this. He's familiar with these agreements. He knows that typically what happens, both, both parties pass through, right? And Abraham is thinking probably in his mind, ain't no way I'm passing through those. Because I know I can't keep my end of the deal. I've already let God down. There's no way I can hold up my end of the agreement. If this covenant is in any way dependent upon Abraham, then I'm a dead man walking. But the grace of God in this passage is that God never asks Abraham to pass through the pieces. God goes through them alone. God is speaking to Abraham as clearly as he possibly can that this covenant is unilateral, Abraham. Abraham, this covenant is not dependent upon your character. It's dependent upon my character. Abraham, this covenant is not a partnership. We're not going to try to cooperate together. No, it is my work, and I will go through for the both of us. So Abraham, you just lie there in your comatose state and believe in me. And I'll take the full load on myself and I will fulfill this covenant regardless of what it costs me. This, folks, is the abounding and overwhelming grace of God that God knows Abraham too. And he never required him to go through because he knew he couldn't. He says, I'll go through for the both of us. You just trust me. And if that sounds familiar, it should. Because right here you see a powerful foreshadowing of the covenant that Christ will establish on the basis of his blood. Because there's another place in the New Testament where the darkness of God will fall on a man on Friday around noon in the springtime on a hill called Calvary. Darkness will fall. And the darkness of God will fall on God himself And Christ will bear the full weight of the curse of this covenant. Cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. And Christ will descend into the valley of the shadow of death. And he will do so all alone. As Isaiah put it, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of of my people to whom the stroke was due. And his body will be torn in pieces. And God dies. Jesus dies. And his blood will establish a new covenant. And we find again the covenant-making God who is covenant with his people will go to any lengths to keep his promise even if he himself has to die. He does all the work. 
He makes the covenant. He bears the curse of the covenant on our behalf so that we can enjoy the promises of God on the basis of faith alone. As one person put it, the covenant maker becomes a covenant breaker so that the covenant breakers could become covenant keepers. Or as scripture put it, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And what a security this brings to those of us who have trusted in Christ. What incredible security and hope this brings. It's not hope with a question mark, like we hope it may or may not happen. This gives the Christian hope with an exclamation point that you can write it down and you can take it to the bank. That God's covenant with us, it's not a cooperative effort. It's based on the finished work of Christ. And the promises of God. And what God has promised to do, he will fulfill. And it is our faith in this covenant-making God who always keeps his promises that gives us an anchor for our soul. Amen. So that when the world around us is falling down and the rest of the world is losing their head, we don't lose ours because we bent the knee to King Jesus and we know he is in control and he has made promises to us that he will most certainly keep. The hymn, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is my hope and stay. So Abraham... God is saying, I'm going, to make, I'm going to make you a great nation. And one day I'm going to bring you into a land. And Abraham was probably thinking, God, I know who you are. I got no doubts about what you're able to do. But I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can make it, God. God says, I got good news. It's not dependent upon you. I know who you are. I'll do all the work. You just believe. And for those of us who know Christ today, we too. We, we read about it in First Peter 1, that we have been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And we read about that inheritance and we say, boy, that sure does sound good, Amen a place where there's no more stains of sin, completely pure, and it never gets old. Doesn't that sound good this morning? But the thought is, God, I don't know if I can make it. I know who you are, but I also know me. You know what God says? I got good news for you this morning. That reserved spot in heaven that you got, It's not coming to you on the basis of how well you live. It's coming on the basis of how well my son lived and your belief in him. You trust in him and he, he will carry you home because God always fulfills his promises. Now, if that doesn't bolster your faith today, something's wrong with you, all right? Don't you love this, how God graciously gets down on our level when we're really struggling? And he says, I'll come alongside you. You hang in there. I'm going to take you by the hand. Abraham, we're going to show you the stars. Abraham said, boy, that's good. He believed in his reckoning. God said, I'm going to give you land. How am I going to get the land? And God gets down on his level again. Let's sign a contract. God, I can't sign. That's okay. I'll sign for you. I know you're going to default on the loan. I'll go ahead and pay it up front. You know, the inheritance that we have in Scripture that's coming to us, it's so certain. Do you know that God's Word talks about it as if it's in the past tense? 
when Paul talks about us and our salvation in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that God has raised us up and seated, uh, seated us with him, meaning with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, when we came to faith in Christ, did God automatically lift us up to heaven? No. So what in the world is God's word talking about there? See, that's the beauty of this inheritance and your salvation and your heavenly home. It's so certain that God talks about it in the past tense. Isn't that good? But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you don't have that hope, it's a prayer away. I don't know how anybody could miss out on this. For the life of me, I will never understand how somebody would rather hang on to their sin and continue down their path rather than giving their sin to God and gaining the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus and having an eternal home secured. Because I don't know about you, but if this is as good as it gets, then that's pretty depressing. I'm hoping Lenexa. I love Lenexa, but I hope this ain't it. So what do we do? We just stay faithful. When all around the world gives way, he is my hope and stay. We're a people. In a wicked and perverse generation, we are to be a people who show a different way. We shine like stars in the universe. We're just faithful to what God promised us to do. And we're always keeping one eye to the sky. Amen. Because this little time, he's coming back. And his patience will end. And Christ will come on the clouds of heaven. And every knee will bow. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue will gather round and we will worship and bend the knee at the feet of a Jewish man named Jesus. Amen? And what a day that will be. If you don't have that hope today, it's available to you based on faith in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you today for your word that very clearly demonstrates to us the means of salvation through faith in Jesus. You've made it so clear from beginning to end that we can't save ourselves. It only comes through faith in Christ. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, never placed their faith in you, I don't know where they've come from. I don't know where they've been. I don't know what they've done. I don't know what they're trusting in this morning. Maybe they're trusting on their good works. Maybe they're trusting on church attendance. Maybe they're trusting in baptism. Maybe they're trusting in church affiliation or denomination. I don't know what they're trusting in this morning, but I pray that you convict them of this that they have only one hope of salvation, and it is faith in Christ. And God, just like you did with Abraham, I pray that you'd take them by the hand, you'd show them the depth of their sin, and you'd show them the beauty of the cross where Christ died for them. And I pray today they'd run to you, and they would know your hope, they'd know your freedom, they'd know your forgiveness, they'd know your salvation. God, for those of us that do know you, God, I pray that we would stay faithful. God, faithful to your word, faithful to your mission. Let us be lights in this world. Let us live differently and love differently. Not a people who just talk about these things, but actually live it. Knowing one day you're coming back. And your word says, when you come back, will you find faith? Will you find your people faithfully doing what you told them to do? 
God, help us to be faithful, trusting in you that you will keep your promises. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.